This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge, a nonprofit newsroom covering education all the way from early childhood through college. In her first year as a teacher, Stephanie Malia Krauss quickly grew to understand that teaching involved a bigger variety of skills than she'd been trained for in her teacher prep program. There was a lot more to it than she expected. That was driven home the day one of her fifth graders walked into class with soot on her uniform. The student's home had completely burned down overnight. It was, I believe it was an electric fire. It was a rental. Her family was doing their damnedest, even though they didn't have a lot of money to make a life for her and her kid, for her and her family, her siblings. Before Krauss could effectively deliver instruction to this student, she knew she needed to address the trauma the girl was facing. So as a first-year teacher... I recognize that nobody had trained me on how to provide therapeutic or even just human care uh, in crisis, that I had a student in crisis in my classroom the moment after trauma had happened, and I had no specific training or skill in what I was supposed to do, not only with her, but with her classmates. How are we supposed to rally together and support her? And Krauss also realized she was unprepared to get the girl's family the kind of help that they needed, especially since she found out they didn't have rental insurance and had essentially lost everything. The family looked to me as a teacher and to the school as an authority for what to do. We were a system that they were connected to, and I had no knowledge of anything in the local community to connect her to. So when I was being oriented as a teacher and even a teacher in that school, there was never a discussion on if a family that you're connected to needs housing support or food support or basic needs support. Here are some local organizations we're connected to that you can refer them out. And so I really felt inept in that moment to support this young girl as a child who I cared for. Memories of that moment eventually led Krauss to go back to school for social work and later to work on national efforts to help students prepare for the workforce. And all those experiences have convinced her there's a need for a greater amount of cross-training for educators, not just in how to deliver instruction, but in how to help students in the many facets of their lives. The need for such varied skills has only gotten more pronounced in recent years, Cross argues. In these times of what she calls political division, racial violence, extreme rhetoric, intensifying storms, mass shootings, economic crises, global pandemics, and more. Kids are coming into classrooms with a lot. She tells her story 
and lays out her views in a new book, Whole Child, Whole Life, 10 Ways to Help Kids Live, Learn, and Thrive. It builds on her previous work, and regular listeners may remember that we talked to Krauss on the podcast a couple years ago. That was about her previous book, Making It, What Today's Kids Need for Tomorrow's World. For this week's episode, I connected with Krauss to talk about her latest argument and about the challenges of talking about the social-emotional needs of children at a time when some politicians have pushed back against the idea. Here is the interview. One of the things it sounds like that your book highlights is that, um, like you said, when you have this moment or this mindset of this, you know, this is not a moment where I'm sure you've been planning your curriculum and you, you do need to teach the students as a teacher the the material, but here it is like the students have to be in a place that they can, they can learn it. And I guess you mentioned um, in your book that the, there's kind of a, a need to understand each student um, and what they're going through. And, and you talk about portraits of each student. Could you, what do you mean by this? And what is, what is that idea? I'm so glad you asked. So um, I want to answer this in two ways. The first part, though, is very quick, which is I left working in schools about a decade ago and have been working nationally ever since. And it wasn't until I left the front lines of education that I really got that training that I needed in the science of learning and development. What actually are the conditions that set our kids up to be able to learn and be able to develop? Um, And that is so much the heart and pulse and science behind this book. And so the first part of the book is a little bit of a play on an education trend that's happening that I've been active in across the country, which are the development of profiles of a graduate. So in high schools all across the United States, um, districts and schools are developing these profiles of what young people need to be able to graduate. And it's really a back mapping from graduation requirements. So taking this idea of a picture, um, the first part of Whole Child, Whole Life says kids are live in context and we have to actually see the full portrait, the, the picture of who they are and where they're situated in order to understand what's going on in their life and then to understand what they need to, to learn to develop properly, and to be able to enjoy their life and build these lives and futures that they really love. Um, And so that portrait kind of starts with, I walk through these five different pieces. And I'll say that as a mom of two school-age kids, the development of a full picture of who my children are is something I strive to do as a parent. But I want every adult in their life whether it's a teacher, an administrator, a coach, or a counselor, to also have that commitment. So it starts with understanding what is my kid or what is a kid's life like based on what they look like, how they live, and where they live. So that's that basic kind of crude outline. Very often, these are harmful, these profiles. Well, this child is is black and poor and lives in this neighborhood. Um, and oh man, I knew their older sibling. And let me tell you about that family. Um, but those perceptions are powerful and have an outsized impact on a kid. And so we 
as the adults who are working with them and caring for them have a responsibility to recognize and learn how those kinds of demographics and determinants really impact them in childhood and and across their lives. I wanted to ask, you know, how do you, you know, obviously like these portraits um, can be, you know, are happening. People have these natural types they put people into. So how do you avoid, how do you make a portrait that's positive instead or helpful to the situation instead of, of bias or, um, you know, kind of profiling in a, in a negative way? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in the book, it's such an important question is I think in the same way that there was a wave of writing and research a few years ago to say, we have to acknowledge we all hold bias and learn what that means. I think we have to acknowledge and realize that we all draw profiles of kids based on the data we have and then recognize what it means and commit to build more and to sort of draw those profiles, I say, in pencil, because they're just the outline and we need all of the other details and color to bring that kid into high definition. So the other pieces that I talk about of um, building that portrait include what's going on in their life health-wise that we should know about and that impacts who they are in the classroom, who they are in the community and other places. Where are they developmentally? So very often, and I'm sure you can appreciate this as a parent, uh, myself, a parent of kids who have grown up in the pandemic, that there's a, there's not always a match between where a kid is chronologically and where they are developmentally. And we have to have that picture. And then the, the last kind of pieces are, who are the people in this kid's life? Where are the places where they spend time and what does that mean for where they belong, where they find community, what their culture is, what their context is? And lastly, um, the thing that brings every student, every child that we work with or care for into high definition is what are their strengths, their gifts, and where do they struggle? In the book, I talk about my two kids and how anybody who meets my 12-year-old knows immediately that he loves baseball. It is unquestioned because of his attire and what he talks about. Um, But the people who truly know him know those um, incredible strengths of personality and persuasion and also the spaces where he's really had a hard time and that I want people who truly know my kid. So the idea here is just that we take our own understanding that we're going to develop a picture of who kids are in our classroom, in our schools, in our lives, no matter what. And if we can put some structure and intention around it, um, there are pieces of the picture to fill out that give us a much better perspective on who they are and what they need and what they need to thrive. Your 12-year-old wrote the first part of the book. He did. He's my very impressive preface writer. And in fact, I went into his sixth grade classroom yesterday to talk about what it's like to be an author. And I got to announce to his classmates that he, um, the book, as soon as it opened up for pre-orders, was an instant bestseller on Amazon and education and counseling. So I got to tell his classmates that they are in class with a best-selling author. <laughs> and your your goal in having him be in the book was was what? I'm really glad you asked that. Um this is a book about what kids need to be well. And when you and I met and had a conversation for the podcast 2 years ago, we were talking about what young people need to be ready for the future. And as I did 
my pandemic book tour two years ago after the release of Making It, I kept getting the same question over and over, which was people were appreciative to know what young people needed to be ready for the future, but they were really worried that the kids in their lives were going to give up or burn out before they got there. And that there were intense concerns about the mental health and well-being of of young people, whether those young people were students, right, or the kids in their own houses. Um, And so it was important to me, this is a book that's written with the same precision and and research as making it, but really with a mom's heart. And if it was going to be about children and young people and what they need to be healthy and whole, and what they need to thrive, I really believed strongly it needed to start with the voice of a young person and that that needed to anchor and center us before we got started. You know, there's one idea around that I think is is relevant to bring up here. I mean, you cite a lot of interesting kind of ideas across the different disciplines you've looked at um, in the last few years. But one of them was this concept of mental health first aid or emotional first aid. Um, what it... I think it's an interesting one because it, you know, you're not saying someone has to be a, a a full therapist to like first aid feels like something, you know, we could all do with a band aid or something that's important. If someone gets a scrape, what is, what, what is the, um, the need for an educator to know about that idea? I would say one of the most important themes in whole child, whole life is this idea of cross training that we have to recognize that if we're teaching students or we're an education leader, any role, any adult role in a school, um, that kids are in our care and that they spend so much time in our buildings and in our classrooms that life happens while they're there. So not only are they learning and getting through content, but mental health challenges are going to show up while they're in school and during a school year or a semester. The reality is is that our mental health um, issues among kids is showing up earlier and more intensely than we've ever seen before. When I started writing the book, it was in response to a named mental health crisis for kids from America's pediatricians and the Surgeon General. And in the eight months of writing the book and in the few months of preparing to have it come out, those numbers have just gotten even higher. And so I really recognize that to support the mental health and well-being of young people, it was going to take an all-hands-on-deck And it goes all the way back to where we started that story of my student when the house burned down, the sort of emotional house can burn down for students. And at any point, you can have a classroom with kids who are experiencing levels of emotional challenge, of um, diagnosable issues to true trauma and grief. And so there has to be a level of, um, as you said, mental health first aid that we're all trained to administer and that we know when do we pass it off and to whom when things get too serious. So in the book, I talk about um, kind of three things when we prioritize mental health that are really manageable and doable for any teacher and anybody in a school. So the first is mental health first aid. So this is actually a free training um, that 
you can bring into your school and young people can be trained in it. So they have a high school um, version of mental health first aid. And it's just like CPR first aid training. And it allows you it's to- It's a program. It. It's a program that's out there that people can connect with. Yep, absolutely. So you can get trained on it. Um, you can have a train the trainer model. So, you, you know, students can train other students. The other two pieces, one is emotional wound care. So thinking about the fact that like, Kids get their feelings hurt more than they get their bodies hurt at school. And how do we put in actual practices in the same way we think about brain breaks um, or, right, like hallway time? What are the mechanisms in a school day that allow us to provide emotional wound care? Some of that is just going like one step beyond things like mindfulness, which have picked up traction in the last few years, to stopping and in the same way that you do brain breaks, doing a breathing check. How are kids breathing? Can they take a couple deep breaths? Do they know how to sort of manage if their breathing is shallow or too fast because of different emotions that are connected there? Um, And then the third is emotional hygiene. So we have regular hygiene, right? Like brushing your teeth and having um, opportunities to work into the day, whether you're a elementary school teacher, like morning meeting, your middle school teacher, like your social emotional learning programming, your high school teacher, like advisory opportunities for kids to figure out what are the habits that help them to feel good and help them to prevent things from happening, protect them when bad things are happening and be prepared if something challenging were to arise. I want to go back to this idea of cross-training because uh, I think it's a really interesting one, right? Because you have, uh, you know, here we are talking about emotional first aid and 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 kind of thinking of the students' well-being mentally and, and, and health-wise there. What are some other areas that you see educators need to cross-train in um, that are important? So I tell a story, a very deeply personal story in the book about... Um, cross-training that I will forever be grateful for that a therapist had. So in the middle of the pandemic, uh, the preface writer of the book, my older son, woke up basically with um, life-stopping OCD symptoms practically overnight. And even though my husband and I are trained both as social workers, we were still... um, questioning what it was. It was the middle of the pandemic. It started with um, kind of ritualized hand washing, but we were all washing our hands a lot. And he was afraid of getting sick, right? And maybe dying, but we were all afraid of getting sick and maybe dying. And then it progressed over hours. So we were lucky to have somebody suggest reaching out to a therapist who was specifically trained in childhood anxiety and OCD. And that therapist said, is he sick? And we said, no, he's not sick. And he said, does he have any symptoms of strep throat? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, you know, this is very strange, but take your kid to the pediatrician and just get him swabbed. And I remember joking with the pediatrician's office at this like weird therapist that was sending me to get a strep throat test. But I had also decided that it's not an invasive test. And if my kid actually had strep throat, I needed to know. 
I left the doctor's office before the results, the rapid results even came back. And they called me when I was driving home and they said, you're not going to believe this. Your son has strep throat. Um, He was actually positive for strep A and strep B. So as it turned out, untreated strep, as one example of what I now know are hundreds, can cause a rapid onset of OCD, anxiety, and tics, which is crazy. And as a mom, I didn't know that. As an educator, I didn't know that. As a social worker, I didn't know that. And so he needed antibiotics. He also needed an understanding teacher for what the heck was happening, because what could have been seen as disturbing behavior in a classroom was actually caused by a a health infection that could be stopped by antibiotics. And then he also needed a little bit of counseling. It took me down this road of learning about the incredible number of vitamin deficiencies or, um, you know, nutritional deficiencies that can cause behavior issues that we see in the classroom as being disruptive or being obstinate when actually it might be caused by a need for sleep, a need for a particular vitamin, a medication change. So I would say I probably was most profoundly changed writing the book and learning about some very typical medical issues, um, inflammation issues, imbalance issues that can cause the kinds of behaviors when I was a teacher and a school leader that would often lead to me assigning detention or discipline consequences. And they didn't need that. They needed adjustment in medication or adjustment in what they were eating or how they were taking care of their bodies. After the break, with all these extra things to think about these days, is it just too much to ask of educators? Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students, to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isteconference.org. Can it feel like too much to an educator or an education leader to, to keep all this in mind, to manage all these things when obviously there's already a complicated job of teaching and getting the curriculum developed, delivered? Is it, what, what would, you know, what, what would you say to someone who looks at this and is like, this is overwhelming? Absolutely. If done alone, um, I think that this is about the art and science of taking care of kids and that all of us who are in any position raising or working with kids 
need to come together and figure out how do we collectively share information and share the responsibility of the kids who are in our care. And so it is as much about um, having the working knowledge and being committed to being a continuous learner ourselves about the nature of childhood, the nature of learning, the nature of health and well-being, and then really being in a position of openness to work with any adult who is connected to the same kids you're connected to, to be sharing information and to be collectively committed to their well-being. I think that there are two ways to look at this. So the book breaks down, the first part is really information about what do we need to know about the wholeness of kids and to keep that in mind. And um, and that really helped educate me even as a parent because I didn't take parenting classes, right, on what's normal developmentally, what's concerning physically, what's going on mental health-wise, how does my child's obsession with Roblox impact how their identity forms, right? What should I expect in a classroom? The second part of the book are these 10 practices that young people should experience in childhood and then internalize, and they last a lifetime. And so this is, you know, us all collectively committing to having a general awareness of what those practices are and mostly recognizing when they're not in place. So if we see that a kid is starting to struggle, it's really nice to be able to have this kind of set of 10 practices to review and say, okay, so so maybe what area is not as strong as it could be or as supported as it could be? Um, is it an issue of basic needs? Is it an issue of mental health? Is it an issue of belonging? And how do I then kind of bolster or strengthen in that space? So you don't have to be applying all 10 practices like a prescriptive program in every situation. It's that, I call it the alchemy. It's a little bit of art. It's a little bit of science. It's a little bit of magic and mystery, right? But it's this idea of no matter what our job title is, We have kids in our care and we have to know what they're going through and we have to know the whole of what it takes to support their well-being and then do whatever, whatever it takes to, to really do our part to support that and where we can't support it to find other people who can. So I do address that in the book, particularly around identity development. If there's an area you do not understand or that is outside of your skill set or outside of your scope of work, fine. Acknowledge it and find somebody else who can support that kid in that space. You mentioned, um, well, I guess one of the things that I'm, as a theme running through these podcasts that we do every week at EdSurge, it feels like a little bit of a understanding what it is to be a teacher and that the narrative around it kind of um, needing a refresh by a lot of the people I have on that mentioned that, you know, and it seems like for you, you've had this journey where you've had a sense of change of what it means to be a great teacher. Um, how would you in a nutshell give a before and after of, you know, in a very concise way, like what it, what, what you thought being a teacher was when you started as a first year teacher versus what it means to you now or what you would sort of, how you would sort of paint it. 
So I started teaching at a time where um, academic achievement reigned supreme. So it was the early 2000s. And the idea was that you were a great teacher if your students could make more than a year of academic gains in the right test scores in the year. And that everything you did needed to be around engaging them in loving the academics and performing well in the academics. And so I organized activities to be engaging, but the purpose of that engagement was their performance, not their development. And I think that if I could go back now with a mom's heart, I now have had my own children. I was not a parent when I was a first year teacher, right? I was a young single person who had helped take care of my siblings and babysit, but I haven't had that experience of having my own kids. Um, but also with everything I've learned in a decade in national work about the science of how kids actually do learn and develop. And as you know, from our prior conversations, living so much of my career actually in higher ed and workforce development and seeing the mismatch between test scores and academic achievement and what it actually means to be ready for the future of work and learning. Um, I think that number one, every single educator should be getting far more pre-service and in-service opportunities on the science of learning and development. How do kids learn? How do they develop? What is appropriate? What is not? And also that cross-training. Every single teacher should have some level of basic first aid level foundation understanding of kids' health, social work, mental health, um, because life happens as learning is happening. And we are the trusted adults in these kids' lives. And we want to do right by them. And the kids are trusting us to know how to take care of them. There's something that um, I wanted to ask about because it's um, it really struck me is that in the kind of things you feel like are the 10 steps, I think it is, or the, you know, the steps that people need to follow, one of them was to make sure that... Um, the teachers and educators are inspiring awe. And I I wondered, you know, what we've been talking about is some of these things have been like preventative of emotional trauma or disease or like things that are, are negative, so to speak. But talk, could you talk a little bit about why awe is in there? Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you, that you asked. Okay. So you have these, so whole child, whole life has these 10 whole life practices and the way to think about these are, what are the practices we as adults can do for kids that help prevent problems before they start, protect kids when they're struggling, but also promote thriving, promote well-being, a good life and learning that they enjoy. And um, spiritual development is a part of that And that was hard for me to grapple with because I write to educators, most of whom work in public schools. How do you talk about spiritual development? But as it turns out, um, there's a great book called The Spiritual Child that was really informative for me. Young people are born with kind of a natural spirituality. It's the questioning of, is there something out there? 
right? Whether that's aliens or God or who knows what, um, this idea of wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And the big takeaways here is that there's something deeply enriching and also incredibly healthy and powerful for kids' brains and development when we create experiences that stretch what they thought was possible and that connect them to community that gives them a sense of bigger purpose um, and something bigger. And often that happens through the parts of school that get cut out, like field trips, field trip to the science center to see the stars or um, a sixth grade camping trip, right? Where they go and spend two or three days on a mountain somewhere. Um, But it also is visiting a nursing home with the elderly or going and helping with the preschool class or with babies. There are ways to feed into that. It's particularly important now because spiritual development is very protective and healing. So it doesn't have to be connected to religion at all. Although if there is an Ed Surge listener here who's a part of, you know, a parochial school or some other faith-based school or homeschool, religion can provide structure and language to it. But it really is feeding into that expansion that the world is big and beautiful and that they They are a part of it. Um, And it really does kind of fire up all of the synapses. You cite Einstein as somebody who has maintained a certain sense of awe or talked about childlike awe to preserve throughout life. Yeah, absolutely. I think a, a current one who we just lost a few years ago was Sir Ken Robinson. And he talked about the element. And it is, it's this idea of like the spark of life. And what we want to do is little kids are constantly in awe. Anybody who's parented or worked with little kids know the big eyes and open mouth and whether it's seeing a puppy or seeing something beautiful or a roller coaster. There's some research to suggest that all we need to do is keep nourishing and encouraging that and um, that life and learning is just a lot sweeter when that big-eyed, open-mouthed experience, like Einstein maintained um, with his curiosity and zeal for life, gets to continue, especially when life is hard. Now, for this book, um, you it sounds like you did some traveling or you, know, you take the readers to different places. And one of them um, was Hawaii. And I wondered, to what was the school you visited there and why? I'm really lucky that I am native Hawaiian, and in the last year and a half, I've always wanted my work to bring me to Hawaii um, for my own personal experience um, and development and cultural connection. And also, I feel a responsibility to be able to give back there whenever I can. Um, And so I have... Hawaii shows up in a couple places in the book, but one of the whole life practices is embracing young people's cultures and identities and really supporting that. And so I talk about um, this incredibly powerful 
movement experience type of learning that happens in Hawaii all the time. It's called Aina-based education. So Aina in Hawaiian is land-based education. And so for anybody listening who thinks about experiential learning or project-based learning, um, this is that. And it's in community and in nature. And it connects... um, I would say it's kind of a whole life rich practice that it lights up all of the practices all at once because young people are getting out into their community. There's a sense of responsibility that they have for the land. They're able to learn from it. So I give an example of a taro farm. So it's called a lo'i. And um, this lo'i kumano ikeala is in West Kauai. Um, And there are a couple of other ones. There's one... Um, Kupa Aina that's on Oahu and they bring students in onto the farm to learn these regenerative and often ancient food practices. They will introduce Hawaiian language, culture, song, story as young people are starting to learn how to care for the farm. And what's really amazing is that with the little ones, it starts with just carrying a bucket of water. And by the time you get up to high school students, they're teaching the younger ones. And so the aina, the land, is an opportunity not only to learn language and culture and customs and history, but it's also an opportunity to build incredible community and belonging and then stewardship. Um, And as we look at our communities who are particularly vulnerable to environmental changes, this idea of do I find the world beautiful and do I feel a sense of ownership over it and do I know how to care for it is a really important piece. So um, what's beautiful about the experience of Kumano Ikeala, this lo'i, this taro farm, is similar to an experience I found with circus schools, if I can just connect these two, there are experiences that are deeply immersive. And this goes back to your question of like, is this too hard for teachers to take on? There are experiences that we can create for young people that light up all of these practices at one time that at once are attending to basic needs and relationship and belonging and creating awe and inviting kids to be of service and feel like they're contributing. And that's the sweet spot. That's what we want to design for. And if we can't design for it in the classroom, then we should look for opportunities to partner in community with community partners like Kumano, and they can help us to create that experience. You know, one of the things that we're we're reading about these days um, is the sort of political backdrop of of teaching right now and different states where leadership is like concerned, you know, like that there are these efforts to um, kind of legislate what is being taught around certain issues about race and and um, and I wonder, um, obviously, this is one you know, like identity is one piece of, of your book, but do you worry about some of these political forces, um, restricting the kind of advice that you're giving in your, from your research? I worry about it. Um, I think that there's a spectrum of policy decisions that you can stack up against 
what is helpful to what is harmful. And anything that gets in the way of young people's ability to learn and live and develop and thrive, that's harmful. And one of the, um, so I would, maybe this is another one I would answer in two ways. So the first is I made a deliberate, arguably political decision when I was writing the book to try to avoid any inflammatory language, um, particular terms that I have used historically that have become deeply politicized and misunderstood. I also made around it, around racery or what or around social justice or what is it around? What are you talking about? Correct. Um, a great example is I don't think I actually used the phrase social emotional learning one time in the book. But you can research my EdSearch articles or anything else in my history to know that that is something I've been involved with for a very long time. Um, So to that end, there was a moral and ethical decision to not dilute any of the science of what young people need to be healthy and whole and to learn and to live wonderful lives. And so I wanted to be able to present the science and the research and the stories and the strategies in a way that was um, as available to parents as to educators, as to coaches and counselors. So this is this decision to say, actually, we as the people who are caring for kids have a set of common concerns that we need to grapple with together. um, And we need to come together to have conversations around. Where policies prohibit a young person's development We all have to be able to come together and understand the science and the implications of what that does, right? So what happens when a young person cannot have their identity fully develop or fully be supported in that? What are the actual research-based consequences to their mental health, to their learning, to their future outcomes, to, you know, all kinds of things. And conversely, and I talk about this in the identities chapter, there's an incredible researcher out of University of Texas at Austin, Stephen Russell, who has found that programs um, like the Gay Straight Alliance actually have positive outcomes for every kid in the building, that it extends beyond the kid who it directly impacts. So um, I am watching right now as policies get thrown up that not only are limiting the learning opportunities for kids, but actually threatening their life. And if somebody is pushing for those policies and they want to not read my book, they shouldn't read my book. If somebody is living in a place with those policies, I wanted to write the book in a way where they could safely still get it into their hands and be able to figure out what kids need to be okay. Wow. So you're literally thinking, I don't want to get my book banned. I'm literally thinking, I don't want to get my book banned because there are kids who live in those communities and the adults are worried about their well-being and what they need to be ready for this world. Yeah. It's a crazy time. It's a crazy time. And I'll say this, you know, you are a podcast host and you also know my writing and work for a long time. Writing about what young people need to be well did not keep me from all of the years of expertise in writing about what they need to be ready for the future. What I recognized was it has to be both. 
Young people have to be ready and well in order to thrive. They have to be ready for this crazy time where life is still unfair and unjust and volatile and uncertain and have the internal and external supports to figure out inside of that context, are there moments and spaces where the conditions are right to thrive and just be a kid? Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. You can keep up with the show by subscribing to our free email newsletter. Just head over to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. That podcast newsletter is where we put our show notes so you can dig into the topics that we cover. And if you haven't done this already, please follow the EdSurge podcast on your favorite podcast app. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, with editing help by Rebecca Koenig. Music by Komaku. We will be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.